and he's done other similar stunt type events for authors that are only somewhat, let's say, tangentially related to the book, let's say, and because it kind of it can be a little bit staged to have someone just go to a library and read passages from their books. So if you turn it into an event, it's it's much more likely to garner attention. Welcome back to The Author Biz. I'm Stephen Campbell, and this is the show where we discuss meaningful ways to get better results with your author business. Thanks for being here again this week. I'm sorry the show publication schedule has been a little erratic lately. But we're here this week, and we have episodes already scheduled for the next few weeks as we march our way towards episode number 100. This is episode 90, and it's a bit of an oddball show. When I first scheduled the interview, the intent was to focus on the differences in the publication processes between large press, indie publishing, and publishing traditionally through a small niche-type press. But when today's guest, Christopher Lombardo, started talking about public relations, and especially some of the oddball public relations tactics, or he calls them stunts, that he's used to generate buzz for his books, we changed the focus of the show on the fly. Christopher, who goes by Chris, is a nonfiction author who's also written for The Globe and Mail, National Post, and The Toronto Star. He's made appearances on Global National TV, CBC News World TV, CBC Radio, and he's a co-founder of, gotta love this name, Really Awful Movies, a website and podcast that celebrates the very best of low-budget cinema. His first book And this is a guy who comes up with some really interesting titles. His first book was titled The Man Who Scared a Shark to Death. The subtitle is And Other True Tales of Drunken Debauchery. It was traditionally published by a large publishing house, and he had access to the kind of professional public relations help that landed him some pretty significant national press. His second book, Tastes Like Human, The Shark Guy's Book of Bitingly Funny Lists was self-published, and he used what he learned from his traditional experience to do public relations for the second book. The third book, Death by Umbrella, The 100 Weirdest Horror Movie Weapons, was traditionally published earlier this year by a small press. As mentioned, Chris is a nonfiction author, and you may not be, but there's still some food for thought here in the way Chris generates interest in his books. We'll dig into some useful information that can be used to generate interest in your fiction as well. I know about a quarter of you are already writing some nonfiction, and I see more and more indie authors dipping their toes into the nonfiction waters now. Before we get to this week's show, I'd like to take a minute to thank all of you who took our survey over the past few weeks. It was only four questions, but the responses were terrific, and they provided some, some nice insights into how we can make this a better, more useful show for you and your author business. One more way that you can grab additional benefit from the author biz is by joining our closed Facebook group. It's a great way to find other authors who share our view of the publishing world. It's a non-promotional zone where we basically ask questions and and share information that we hope will be useful to the other authors in the group. We're keeping it intentionally small right now so we can get to know one another in the closed, non-public environment. 
If you think the group might be interesting to you, just search for author space biz or author biz, two words, on Facebook. You're looking for the closed group, not the show page. Okay, let's get to this week's interview. Chris Lombardo, welcome to the Author Biz. It's great to be here. Chris, you have sort of an interesting background. Um, you, you've, you've written for television. You've written for magazines. You've written for newspapers. Uh, you're a humor guy, and you have this, at least to me, this really bizarre habit that you're sort of uh, building a life around. Uh, can, you, can you share with us what that habit is? Yeah, it's interesting. I guess I grew up um, memorizing stand-up comedian routines and then fusing that with a love for literature. And that's how I came to the comedy biz. So I would um, stay up late on Sunday nights and record local radio stations here and memorize the routines of Richard Pryor and Rodney Dangerfield and whatnot. So wow. that, really, that really helped me develop because I'm not really perhaps the best prose stylist by any means, but I got decent wit, and then I sort of try and mold my jokes into into my writing. And then you somehow or other d- developed an interest for horror movies, and, and you've just sort of rolled that into a podcast, a website, and now a book, uh, Death by Umbrella, the 100 Most Unusual... Uh, help me out with the, with the subtitle there. <laughs> Hey, I love these long subtitles. That's what I'm going for here. The 100 Weirdest Horror Movie Weapons. Yes. <laughs> so is this like a childhood thing of yours? Did you grow up watching horror movies? Oh, definitely. I remember me and my friends used to get together. We were around 12 or 13, and we'd have sleepovers, and we'd rent stuff like Texas Chainsaw Massacre oh. and Hospital Massacre and Slumber Party Massacre. Just anything with massacre in the title. I remember as a child, we had something called Chiller Theater, and I'm, I'm a, a generation or so older than you. And if I would, we'd have friends over, and if I would stay up and watch it, I was terrorized. I couldn't sleep that night, and I'm constantly looking under the bed. So this is not an interest that I developed through <laughs> life, but it, it, it's amazing to me that, that you have such an interest in this, and you're sort of building a career around it. Uh, yeah, if, if I can immodestly say uh, Part of the impetus for the review site, which I started, was because uh, my memory isn't perhaps the greatest, so I thought I'd chronicle all the movies I grew up watching and put it online. So I started a review site, reallyawfulmovies.com, and that ballooned into a book idea, and the co-author is a good friend of mine whose knowledge of horror films way surpasses mine. So I, of course, because I'm a smart guy, I got him on board to help me out. <laughs> All right. Now, you have, as an author, you have sort of an interesting background. So we're going to talk briefly about your background, and then, and then we're going to get into the, the primary purpose of the show, which is to is to get into some detail about all of the different options that are available to authors today in terms of publishing. But uh, the first book you published, which was called The Man Who Scared a Shark to Death and Other Tales of Drunken Debauchery? Uh, Yes. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Darwin Awards series. Yes, yes. Uh, This was a spin on that, except with drunk people. So it was uh, real stories from all over the world, and we chronicled them, me and a, another author. Uh, uh, it was a, high, a, a um, college friend from journalism school. And, and that was traditionally published by Penguin. And uh, th- yes, yes, it was. And then your next effort was a, an independently published book 
called Taste Like Humans? Uh, yeah, Taste Like Human. It was a um, at the time, I guess around I want to say five or six years ago, the listicle phenomenon was really reaching its apotheosis. So everything is a list, and it still continues to this day. The hundred greatest this, the fifty top this, uh, listicles has become part of common vernacular now. So we tried to. Uh, published that book traditionally, and we were beaten to the punch by the likes of Cracked and these big websites that also do lists. So mm-hmm. we could not compete with them. So we decided to try our hand at indie publishing because we really had no other option after this thing was rejected everywhere in New York City. And then the most recent, uh, Death by Umbrella, the one that we started talking about, was published by a, a small sort of specialty press. Uh, yes, they're called Bear Manor Media. I think they're based out of Georgia. Okay, and that's Bear, like B-E-A-R? Uh, yes, okay. not Bear as in Naked, yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, so, so you, have, you have an interesting mix of experience, uh, large press publishing, small press publishing, and indie publishing. So that's what we're going to get into today, talk about some of the differences and you know, some, some of the whys uh, we might want to go a certain direction and or the why nots to go in that certain direction. So uh, first, let's just kind of walk through for people who might be really new to the show. And this is not going to be 75 percent of the people out there listening. But so we'll keep this short. But if you wouldn't mind, just sort of describe the difference between a large press, a small press and indie publishing. Uh, well, first and foremost, the money. But really, that <laughs> that is immaterial. Pardon the pun. Uh, it's it's mostly I would say the publicity that that is really falling on my shoulders now because I'm with a small press. But for the first, the first go round, my God, I couldn't believe I was had the good fortune of actually having a publicist. I just it blew my mind. I didn't even think that far ahead when I was pitching them. And this guy is terrific, and he was able to get us exposure in a national newspaper in Canada called the National Post. So what he did because he's a savvy marketer. He arranged a drinking contest for our book launch. And <laughs> me and my co-author were involved in a Guinness chug-off. And so I, I quaffed uh, a Guinness in about four seconds flat. And journalists love to imbibe. That's a well-known fact. Mm-hmm. And we, we got a bunch of journalists to cover this, uh, I guess, media little, little event at a downtown Toronto bar. And it was a perfect tie-in. And he's done other similar stunt-type events for authors that are only somewhat, let's say, tangentially related to the book, let's say. And because it's kinda, it can be a little bit staged to have someone just go to a library and read passages from their book. So if you turn it into an event, it's, it's much more likely to garner attention. And in this particular case, because you had a publisher, or you had you had a large press publisher, they assigned you a publicist. You you didn't have to do the kinds of things that that maybe you had to do with your your most recent two books, where maybe you had to go out and find a publicist, maybe you had to design a cover, maybe you had to you know do all the other things that come along with not being published by a large press. But I, I do think that uh, there's a difference between. Uh, levels of large presses and and what you get depending on what they expect because I've talked to a number of people who maybe for their first book they get the publicist and for the second book they get a little bit of time from the publicist publicist and from the third on the third book they're sort of on their own (laughs) yes definitely uh I I wish I knew (laughs) 
then what I know now, because I would have, uh, I guess, in tandem with a publicist, uh, pitched him ideas on how to further get more attention, because I think no, it was, this is no fault of his. Uh, he did a spectacular job, but I think we failed to tap into the college market and I think it would have been uh, fruitful to go on big campus tours and do something related. Uh, I don't know how that would have been with maybe campuses would have been reticent about having events related, like promoting drinking on their on their campus. So who knows? But I think that was untapped. We, we did very well with mainstream media, but I don't know if we went to the younger audience as well as we could have maybe. I can see why colleges might not want uh, events themed around tales of drunken debauchery <laughs> to be, <laughs> to be uh, publicly associated with them. For sure. But we could have done something a little, maybe a little more sly and less, you know, in, in your face on that front. But you, know, you never know. It would have been, let's say, an option to pursue. Okay. And then when you indie published your next book, everything was different. No publisher, uh, no, no publicist. Uh, no assigned editor, no assigned cover designer, none of that. What what was that like for you? Oh, wow. Well, um, it was just completely uncharted waters. And I, I got to cite uh, a book that I was using as inspiration for this. And there was an, there's an author in New York, and he wrote a book, Indie, called The Hemming Way. Now, this is good for you because you're in Florida. <laughs> so this, this is a parody of... How to Live Like Ernest Hemingway, and the subtitle is How to Unleash the Booze-Inhaling, Animal-Slaughtering, War-Glorifying, Hairy-Chested, Retrosexual Legend Within, which I, I just love. So he, this guy was able to get press for this terrific book, and so I thought, I'm in the humor space, nonfiction. I'm going to try and do the same. Now, the, what happened was he ended up selling his book to a big press and he took it out of the independent space. So he was no longer a, 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 an exemplar that I could follow. <laughs> so I thought, oh, here I am. I'm going to follow directly in his footsteps. But he just went and reverted back to traditional. So I was left almost to my own devices. And I guess it was difficult finding a cover artist, because you had to make an indie book look legit. Lots of indie publishing looks, frankly, just dreadful. And, and Matt, could... it, what time frame was this when you indie published this? This was a while ago, right? Uh, this would have been, I guess, 2011 or 2012. Okay, that was sort of in the beginning of the indie publishing phenomenon, and there would not have been a lot of websites you could go to or podcasts that you could listen to or other examples that you could follow on how to do this. So you were, it was really sort of uncharted territory for you at the time. Uh, yes. I, I basically spent hours and hours and hours going through Amazon reviewer biographies and trying to find people who posted their emails online so I could pitch them. And this was really arduous. <laughs> and how did that work? Uh, I managed to get a bunch of reviews, which is pretty good, and they were all favorable. Uh, so, but then there's no real one-to-one -one relationship, as you probably know, between number of reviews you get and how well you sell. It's just one of those nice to have, but isn't necessarily a uh, a means to success. Okay. Now the next book, the world of publishing has completely changed by the time you do this book, and it's you know obviously a specialty 
really niche kind of book. Humor, horror movies, you're, you're niching way down in terms of audience. So what, what's, what's changed in your mind uh, with, with the publishing of this as compared to your other books? You sound like my agent because uh, <laughs> uh, they, they, they took a pass on this because they said that uh, nobody – well, nobody will buy uh, a, you know, a film book in, in New York City in a big publishing house because it's a niche of a niche. Mm-hmm. And because you have to like reading about film and then uh, to take that down another level, you have to like horror films specifically. So <laughs> I, I really had no luck uh, on the traditional front. And so I was left to my own devices once again. Okay, so your agent just said, I'm not, I don't even want to be involved with this. Yes, essentially. Okay. But the key advantage that I had over the the indie book is that I have hardcover, softcover, and ebooks. So that's really, really essential because it's hard getting press for something that's only existing in e-form because people are still prejudiced against against uh, non-print books. So how are you getting the press now? Because So you have the small press publisher and you have these three different versions that presumably they have, they have done for you. Did they do the cover? Uh, I actually got someone in the horror space to do the cover, someone who is an artist who does uh, – horror film characters on skateboards and he's a painter and a uh, web designer and so he's he's based out of indiana and we found him because he's part of a horror network we belong to and he did the cover for us and i think he did just a wild job it is it's, a fantastic cover <laughs> it's, it's incredible and we wanted something that had real dynamism and something that was reaching out toward the viewer well let's let's actually let me let me take a step back so this is you've you've had large press you've indie published and then with this one uh, did you have to go out and find an editor, or did the the press find the public or the editor for you? Uh, the press had an an editor, okay. and also I'm as luck would have it, my co-author is an English teacher at the college level, so he can he can bang around all that stuff and fix all the subjunctive, normative, dative clauses that I know nothing about. <laughs> <laughs> So he, he's just terrific on that. I, I, my theory, which rankles him to no end, is that you can stick a comma anywhere and, and see what happens. And he says, no, there are actually laws about this. So <laughs> I, I'm with you. I stick commas everywhere, and, and I get uh, plenty of grief for it from editors. So it's just, I, you know, one thing, the first thing I remember hearing was, you are just out of control with your commas. <laughs> and I am. It just everywhere it feels like there should be a pause, I throw in a comma. Admitting it is the first step. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Okay, so and no publicist, I'm assuming. So the publicity is all on you. Uh, I am the publicist. I, I recently actually did a corporate communication certificate at a local college here in Toronto, and I'm using some of the pitching techniques uh, that I learned there, as well as experience I have as a journalist to garner attention. So I don't know what someone would do if they had no journalism or public relations experience and we're trying to get their book out. I just have no idea. I am so grateful that I have this background. All right. Well, let's pretend that you're talking to an audience of people who don't know. What do we do? Oh, uh, well, condense your work into 300 words of something really compelling. And uh, pitching the media involves usually picking uh, a time of year that your book would fit into, ideally. Uh, of course, 
I don't really have the luxury of that now, but I'm going to do another pitch around Halloween because that's the, the time that horror is obviously tied to. Mm-hmm. Um, with, with straight up fiction, my God, that is tough. I would have no idea. Nonfiction, that's my bailiwick. That's where I, I would have tons of ideas of how to pitch stuff there. So timeliness, uh, cleverness, find people who would be interested in what you do. And I suspect humor comes into play as well for you. Oh, definitely. Uh, I, I bandied about several different versions of my pitch to try and garner interest. And I also, I, I'm a bit of a, I have a good eye for design. So I went on using Photoshop and InDesign and made a little, made a little um, PDF graphic to accompany my pitch. It's something that is clickable, that journalists can have all the information at their disposal right away. So they could find my website and my bio and everything. So I, I put a lot of effort into the pitch. All right, let's brainstorm a little bit. Let's say that you are me, and you just published a collection of short stories that are mysteries that take place in Florida. What would you do? You just said you'd have no idea how to do this for fiction, but let's, let's brainstorm. And, and let's say I wanted to get uh, attention from Florida-based newspapers. How would I pitch? Okay, so this is a short story collection? It's, it's a mysteries. collection, yes. Uh-huh. Huh. Hmm. Ooh, uh, I don't know, without being a little too uh, inappropriate, uh, if, is, if, if there's a real-life story that you could tie it into, is this crime? It is crime, but it's, it's, it's not based on any real crimes. It's, it's just basically an introduction to a character, but it's, it's locale-specific. Most of the stories take place in Miami. Um, it, it involves politics, uh, kidnapping, rich people, uh, and, and just in general people behaving badly. Interesting. Huh. I would have to have to think on that. It's, it's a tough environment these days because uh, so many large media outlets have cut back in their art department and their art, I guess, as an umbrella term, covering film, dance, books, you name it. So mm-hmm. the, the number of critics out there are not that numerous. And that, okay. that is a bit of a problem, but definitely having a, a, a key laser focus is great for your Orlando Sentinels and your Miami Heralds and whatnot. So, and tying it into an event wouldn't be bad either, but I, I can't think of what that event would be. Let's say that I, I was going to do what you did and create uh, an image, a clickable image. Um, what kind of an image would I create or pay someone to create for me? And, let's, you know, not just me. I mean, there are lots of mystery series that take place in specific locations. There are a lot of cozy mysteries that take place in small towns. There are a lot of crime novels that take place in big cities. Uh, you know, what, what, how do we capture that, uh, that locale or some sense of the story and turn it into an appealing image? Well, that, that's, that's a good question. Uh, I guess I would have different images depending on where I'm pitching. So because you don't want a typical South Beach uh, palm tree thing for Florida media. That's something that would appeal to people who, who conjure that up in their mind when they think of the Sunshine State. So I, I would have several going and, and do a little – I don't – I'm not a big fan of literal representation. Mm-hmm. So I, I, like, I like subtlety and, uh, and illusion and – Nothing that's straight in your face. Like if you notice my book, the, the, the weapon isn't – the umbrella weapon is not being used to kill. This is a cloaked figure who's reaching out to the reader. Mm-hmm. So I, I didn't want – specifically didn't want someone being stabbed with an umbrella. So I, I, I would use some of the touchstones you have in the state for out-of-state pitches. 
and try and pull everything together. But that's, again, a, that's a really clever idea, not something that, that, I've, that I've heard before. Uh, the yes. idea of having different images for, for different locations. I like that. For sure. And, and I, I think the Republic will stand if we don't see another revolver on a crime novel. My God. <laughs> All right. Now, with, with yours, for people listening to this, we'll have the cover in the show notes. So you can check out the show notes at theauthorbiz.com, and, and we'll have links to everything in there. But it's a great place to go and see the cover and then click through to, to learn more about the book. What else have you done to market this book? Oh, well, uh, me and my co-author, Jeff, were... We're, um, I guess, uh, critics in the independent film space. So we get lots of stuff sent to us, and we cover local events. And uh, Toronto is a little bit of a hotbed of, of uh, horror, and there's a, a fairly strong uh, Canadian horror scene, and that goes back to the uh, films of David, David Cronenberg from the 70s and 80s and whatnot. So we have a few events that are around here, and we frequently attend these and cover them and interview uh, attendees. So we are probably going to set up booths at some of the next prominent conventions in uh, Toronto and the greater Toronto area. So we're going to be there signing and, um, and selling books. So that's, that's another outlet. Uh, predominantly, we're hoping that our podcast numbers will translate into sales. As we're doing, I guess, quite smashingly with our podcast, we're part of a big horror network based mm-hmm. in Los Angeles, uh, that's uh, that was launched by Eli Roth, is an actor from Inglorious Bastards, and so we have like a pretty big audience to draw upon uh, that's growing, and we'd like to see it really balloon so it can be used to spur sales. It's it's very tentative at first, but we hope that that'll uh, it'll start to get the ball rolling. And you guys have a very well produced podcast. I know that that you have a cheaper is better mentality, the same way that I do, because you don't make any money doing these podcasts. But they're fun. Um, so I, I, I just I compliment you on, on the way that you're producing these shows. Is it you or your partner who actually does the production? Oh, I don't even know if I would use the word production. <laughs> does it count to just install Audacity and just to bang around with it? Like, I don't know. That's exactly it. You know, in my case, it's uh, GarageBand. Oh, yeah. And it's amazing. Our technology is so limited that the digital recorder is unable to pick up anything beyond our voices. So we get lucky in the fact that it's so primitive. <laughs> that is, that's valuable. Now, uh, another one of the things that you've done is that you've pitched podcasts. I, I happen to know that because you pitched me, and it, it was a very professional pitch. And I, you know, we, it, it took several emails and then a Skype call before we hit on uh, an appropriate topic for this show, but... You kept pushing. Uh, definitely. Well, I, I love to talk books and the book business, and your audience may not necessarily overlap too much with mine and my, uh, my genre slasher movie uh, aficionados that listen to me and that, but uh, I just love talking books and listening to one of the editors you had on your show from a big imprint in New York City was really useful to me. And so I just love to share whatever wisdom I've gleaned from however many years I've been involved in this, so... Yeah, but it's important to reach out to different audiences as well as well as a general principle. Now, if you were if you were advising someone how to pitch a podcast or a, a group of podcasts, what would you advise them to do? How how should they go about that? Hmm, that's that's interesting. Well, definitely check out their show and see where you where your expertise can fit in. 
uh, because it's by no means a guarantee. I, I get pitched myself, and mm-hmm. there's, there's you have to turn people down as well. So it has to be a really good fit. And what when when you're being pitched, what what appeals to you? What what makes a, a particular pitch sort of jump off the email page, so to speak, to where you'd say, yeah, that that actually looks interesting. Oh, definitely the enthusiasm and specifics. So if someone comes to me and said, oh, I really enjoyed your podcast on A Nightmare on Elm Street. You explored really neat themes of Freudian subtext and and dreamscapes and everything. I I, I would think, hey, that's terrific. I, I really appreciate it. And... And and that's exactly what you did for me. You you quoted a specific podcast, gave a specific example of how that helped you, and so it made a difference. And I, I suspect that back in the day when you were emailing Amazon reviewers, you were doing something similar. You know, you you might have commented about something specific that they said about a certain book that would make them take you seriously. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And the book for me is a Stephen King book of nonfiction called Danse Macabre. And in that book, he talks about uh, his early influences growing up as a kid and the the sci-fi movies that really, uh, I guess, forged his uh, interest in in uh, horror horror fiction. So if anyone had kind things to say about Dance Macabre, I was all over them because I could relate. I've read that thing cover to cover. My, my copy has disintegrated. i got to pick it up in hardcover. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think there's an update of it, and I'm really excited about it. But uh, there's a few... Key things. Also, um, in the humor space, it would be some of my key favorites. So whether it be your your uh, David Sedaris or anyone, anyone who writes in the nonfiction space, uh, Bill Maher, anybody. So if someone has kind things to say about some people I've, I have affinity for, then I'm all over it. And but these days, because there's been a sea change in how Amazon has organized its site, you cannot find these people as easily as you once could. Really. Yeah, I, I've had a, a real struggle finding some of, some people who are willing to divulge, I guess, details about their email addresses. Oh, so right. I, I've left that stuff out, uh-huh. and I'm leaving Amazon reviews to just friends, and I'm trying to get uh, big-time press, and I'm, I'm hoping that the Amazon reviews will come. But again, as we said, the, the, we don't need them necessarily, as your, your guest said. All right. One of the things that, that you mentioned just sort of in passing when we were communicating – was that you had done a, a giveaway. I think it was a giveaway on Goodreads. Yes. Can you talk about that for, for a little while? Because Goodreads is sort of a mysterious animal to me. Uh, I, I approach Goodreads like I do every social media site. Uh, it's never, ever, ever, this is the rule, never one directional. You have to engage with people and share things that are not about you. Uh, so if I find something interesting that other people will find interesting, I share it and I compliment people's stuff if I like it. I'm, I'm very involved. A lot of authors just have one-way communication and that's never good. You have to engage with people and uh, and be, be a real person and not just dominate the sphere. And uh, when you say you compliment people's stuff, are you, are, do you mean you're complimenting a review someone might have left or are you complimenting uh, an author's book? Um, well, both, but it, it could be a review left on, uh, let's say, the Hemingway. Mm-hmm. I would say, hey, I read this, and I, 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 I thought that was a salient point. So I'm, I'm really engaged with people. I'm a user, not uh, – although I'm designated an author, I'm a user as well. So I don't just have a one-way author page. So I'm really involved with everything. Uh, regarding the giveaways, the site has just launched an ebook giveaway. Which yes, I'm, I saw I'm that. That is about. exciting, yes. So I'm going to 
do my ebook giveaway around Halloween. Now, regarding the paperback giveaway, it's a really cheap, neat way of getting tons of exposure for the cost of mailing. And you can pick which countries you send it to. So I wanted to curb my costs a little bit, so I just said North America. That's it. So I designated North America anywhere in the uh, contiguous 48 states, I guess, uh, Canada. And you generate a lot of what are called to-reads. That means people have decided that they're going to add it to their list of books they want to read. Now, the caveat being not all these people, of course, will A, stay with Goodreads, or B, read your book. But one hopes that a significant portion will, and that'll translate into sales. Do you have any sense, uh, any numbers yet on, on how that's working for you? Uh, for a, the typical giveaway will range, depending on the, the subject matter, will range from 200 entries to 1,500. So again, if, if you're J.K. Rowling and you're giving away a signed copy of uh, <laughs> the latest Harry Potter or whatever it is, you are going to get a boatload of entries. But if you're just a small, oh, I, I don't know, it, the harder it is to describe your niche, the worse it is. So you, you should not have a problem because crime is popular there. And romance is popular there. I had a little problem because nonfiction isn't as prevalent. But that still, I, there's a strong contingent of horror people. And I was able to get 700 entries wow. for the giveaway, which I thought was terrific. I, I, I budgeted, or not budgeted, I, I ballparked 300. So this was terrific. And how many, how many copies did you give away? I gave away one copy, and thus far, 300 people have designated it to read. So that, that's the cost of the book and the cost of shipping to one person? Uh, yes. And the, the, the contest winner, I wrote them personally and did a little – they happen to be in the east coast of Canada. I wrote them a little message about their province because I'm quite familiar with the Maritimes in, in Canada. And I wrote them a neat little message saying – I really like Nova Scotia, and I'm glad you won, and it's, I'm happy that you were involved. And it was a, a neat little thing that I hope they appreciate. Okay, now let, let's compare that to the ebook giveaway, which is, has just, as you said, just been released. So we don't, we don't have any actual figures on it yet, but it costs, I think, is it $100 or $119 to give away 100 books? Um, I don't know about the terms. I, I, was, I was only going to give away a few. I didn't know you could give away that many. It's, I, I, and I'm... I'll put this in the show notes, but I, I was reading up on it the other day. I can't remember if it's 100 or 119 or, or something else. But that's for up to 100 books. You can give away one or you can give away 100. But presumably then you get the same general benefit that, that you're talking about, where a set number of people will, will go add it to the to-be-read list. It will just show up in more and more streams and, and become more obvious to people. But definitely. And when you compare that with uh, giveaways that Amazon offers – uh, the Goodreads community is a reader-based community. Everyone is, is there solely to, because they're interested in books. Amazon, by contrast, and I've read this in several sources, is a one-stop shop for everything. Mm -hmm. So people who enter contests don't necessarily like books per se. They just like winning things. So there's a key difference between Goodreads and Amazon. And I think Amazon uh, doesn't pay off in the long run. I, I have done quite a few giveaways for my humor book, the independent one, because sales were sluggish. And I thought, oh, I'm just going to get this out there as like a business card, an online business card to see if people like my writing and see if it can spur sales uh, for my traditionally published books. 
Okay. And is, is there a provision within Goodreads um, when you're doing this? Is, is there a, a subtle way of asking that people review the book if they, if they happen to read it? It's actually built into their model that they, okay. urge, they urge people to review it. And people are more than happy to do so. I think they have a pickup rate of 65%, which is pretty darn good when you think about it. So, And people are generally more uh, amenable to praising a book that they get for free. And one would hope, especially from authors in Toronto who send them nice notes. So <laughs> we'll see what happens. <laughs> all right, Chris. This has been a fascinating conversation. We've kind of been all over the map, but uh, it, it, it's been very interesting and a different kind of show for, for me. So I, I've, I've learned quite a bit today, and I, I appreciate you coming on. Oh, I appreciate it, too. Thank you so much. And what's the best place for people to follow what you're doing online? Reallyawfulmovies.com. And uh, that's my website. I have uh, genre film reviews uh, three times a week, and they're really fun. All different genres from musicals to sci-fi to action. And then uh, the Really Awful Movies podcast is updated every weekend. Again, genre films, predominantly horror, smart, sometimes profane chat about uh, genre films. And on Twitter, awful underscore movies. And I, I have to say one thing. When I got the email from you, it's, it, there's the subject line which I had something to do with your podcast, and then there's the email address to the left, and all I saw was awful podcast. <laughs> and I thought, uh-oh, what's this? <laughs> we have to explain to people that it's actually a name and not some sort of editorial comment about the podcast, for sure. <laughs> all right. Thanks so much for being here, Chris. I appreciate it. Thank you so much.